Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 155, recorded January 25th, 2014. So this is our 84th 90s episode and we're doing Deep Space Nine special number one and Worf special number zero. Number zero? Indeed. Wacky. So both of these are broken up into multiple stories, so they're sh- somewhat shorter than a normal book, but uh, each individual story is shorter than a normal book, but we will have five separate stories to talk about. Yeah, well, we have five stories just in special number one. I thought there was three stories. Is there five in special number five, one? Five, five, five special stories, Yeah, That means we have seven stories. Exactly. So we'll be going back and forth between the synopsis and the commentary, as we usually do when we have multiple stories within a book. Right. And the Wharf special has two stories, right? Has two spe- two stories and then like seven pages of pinups, which I will not be reviewing those. <laughs> Although some of those pinups are kind of nice, and we'll talk more about those later. Right. So do you want to do yours first since it came out in August? Sure. All right, so, yes, five stories, which is all part of special number one for 1995. And uh, the first one is Collision Course. Title is Collision Course. Creative team is Phil Crane, the writer. Penciler is Rod Wiggum. Inker is Scott Reed. Letterer, Patrick Owsley. Colors by Moose Bauman. Interior color by Prism Riot. Associate Editor is Dan Shaheen. Media Line Editor, Mark Panacea. And of course, there is only one cover, so I'm going to cover the cover in the first story synopsis. The cover features the heads and upper bodies of Cisco, Odo, and Kira with a Starfield background. Nice and simple. Very generic for the show. The story opens with Cisco making a station log, noting that the Defiant has been taken to the nearest starbase for repairs of damage it sustained when it was commandeered by Thomas Riker. The repair will be completed as soon as practical to make her battle-ready and returned to the station. In Quarks, Odo is quizzing the proprietor about his new Gamma Quadrant tour service. His partner in the venture, a Klingon named Clag, who uses his ship to transport their customers on the tour, apparently met a Cardassian ship on the last tour trip and took something aboard. Odo wants to know what that something was. Before he can convince Quark to stop his verbal evasions, the station is rocked. Sisko calls Odo to, the, to ops. When he arrives, Sisko explains they have been hit by debris from the collision of two asteroids in the wormhole. He says the ship's shields can protect them from the small to medium pieces, but not from a large one that is heading towards them. Sisko is open to suggestions, but encourages speed since the big rock will hit the station in about 20 minutes. 
So there's not enough time to evacuate the station. Phasers won't work because all available power is going to the shields and the station's phasers are not powerful enough to take out a rock that big. Odo tells Sisko that he believes Quark's partner, Clagg, is smuggling Cardassian weapons. And they are aboard the Klingon ship right now. There may be enough to blow up the asteroid. They transport Odo and O'Brien to the Klingon ship. There, they find explosives and estimate there's enough here that could blow up a small moon. Maybe even a Death Star. Dax figures if the Klingon ship was flown into the asteroid, the explosives would detonate and should remove the threat. The challenge would be to fly that ship past all the smaller debris to get to the larger asteroid remnant. An autopilot couldn't do it even if they were able to program it and rig it up in time. A person will have to do it, but who? It will be a suicide mission. O'Brien volunteers. Julian objects, but Sisko thanks O'Brien and wishes him good luck. Clagg enters the ship. Odo places him under arrest. Clagg tries unsuccessfully to run Odo through with his diktag. Odo removes him from the ship. O'Brien departs the station. He finds the debris harder to avoid than he thought. Dax says she is beaming him out of the ship now. But O'Brien says not until he has a clear path to the asteroid. Contact is made. The shock wave from the explosion almost causes the transporter to lose its lock on O'Brien. Finally, the successfully rematerialized O'Brien is in the station. His uniform is a bit charred, but other than that, he's in good shape. Later, in Quark's, Odo is sternly asking Quark if he had any prior knowledge that Clagg was smuggling those explosives. Quark says he knew nothing of them, and even if he did, there's no evidence. It all blew up. The end. That's abrupt. The end. end. Well, the main point is, you know, the everlasting competition between Odo and uh, Quark, the cat and the mouse... Uh, in this case, the mouse is quite pleased with himself that he has, again, evaded the cat. Yeah. So, and I always like that, even though Court talks a good game, you know, I think I think he does kind of uh, always try to help him out. Right. You know, yes. And it makes him look a little inept, but you always kind of wonder, did he, did he do that on purpose? Right. So... And, of course, we'll see a, another story coming up, which shows how Quark is sometimes a good guy. Right. But that still doesn't stop Odo from trying to catch him. So did you really think O'Brien was going to sacrifice himself here? Oh, no, of course not. Are you kidding? There for a second. I, I wasn't was sure. I thought this was it. No, of course not. He's a main character. He's better. I mean, we, we, you know, any of these stories in the middle of the run... Uh, I mean, you know O'Brien's there at the end, so come on. I mean, in the TV show, so. Right. All the characters, I mean, other than Dax, I mean, you know, or Jedzia, I guess I should say. Yeah, but she didn't die in the comic book. She died in the show. Nobody's Well, I know, but that's what... (laughs) Right, right. But I stated they were all there at the end of the series, and I corrected myself with Jedzia. Sorry. Sorry. Anyways... I thought that was... I didn't know how they were going to beam him off of the asteroid, which I assumed was a, a 
fairly good distance away. Right. With the all, shields up. Right. Because the shields are up. They're they're deflecting all those little meteors. Hey, hey, don't think that. <laughs> You're thinking too much. Okay. But what about the transport? What about the shields? Thinking too much. <laughs> and wh- why is he so charred when he does reappear? Well, I, the only thing that I thought would even make sense is that when she actually pulls him out, the explosion has happened. And he is there for the very earliest millisecond of the blast before the transporter takes him away. That's the only suggestion. And and the timing is ridiculously... It would be ridiculously narrow if that was the case. I mean, because he can't get charred in the transporter beam. It has to happen before he dematerializes, right? Right. So... But, yeah, so, for those of you that may not have the comic, uh, O'Brien's all, his his uniform's got, like, spots of burnt uh, stuff. And he's a little dirty in the face, but other than that. He's literally smoking. <laughs> yeah, His right. clothes are smoking. Yeah, right. So, anyways. I thought the art was okay. Decent. Not fantastic, but Decent. Uh, although I will say that in the center of page five, O'Brien's face looks a lot like Donald Trump. <laughs> All right. I can see that, I guess. <laughs> uh, I thought the art was good. And I actually like the way they depicted uh, Odo here. You know, uh, uh, just in general. Shape shifting thing. You know, a lot of times he looks a little too plastic manny. Right. But here it actually kind of looked more like what he does in the show where you could actually see little ripples and stuff in his in his body. Oh, so that's when the Klingon tried to run him through. Right. And he just went all kind of liquidy. Right. And his knife went right through. Right. The body. Yeah, that does look Yeah. It looks a little bit less. It looks a little more subtle. And then I really like the artwork of Deep Space 9 itself and the asteroids coming in. I, and the shields, and, mm-hmm. and I, I thought the exterior shots were really nice. Yeah, they were. Like that one on page two, the title page, I thought was really cool with the, the asteroid looming over. And then the uh, towards the end, the almost full page of boom! So the you know, big word boom and big huge jaggedy uh, font, and then blinding light, and then the station silhouettes all blacked out. That yep. was kind of nice, too. Agreed. Very nice. Yes. Very, very nice. <laughs> okay. That's all my comments. Same here. Excellent. Let's go on to number two. This one's called Frozen Boyhood. Writer is Bruce Costa. Penciler, Keith Conroy. Inker is Aubrey Bradford. Letterer, Joe Allen. Color design by Moose Bauman. Interior color by Prism Riot. Associate Editor, Dan Shaheen. Media Line Editor, Mark Panacea. Jake is trying to eat a meal, but an annoying Bajoran woman is talking too much and annoying the heck out of him with her self-absorbed chatter. She rummages around in his bag and takes out what appears to be a 1990s vintage Sony Discman portable CD player. It has a program in it 
that plays back some of the greatest moments in baseball history. He tells her to be careful with it, and she thoughtlessly tosses it to him. As she prattles on, he is lost in memories of the past, when he was having a meal with his father, and Dax informs them over the comm that the Federation science vessel, McAuliffe, has arrived for a layover. Jake and his father look at each other with smiles on their faces, and both say, Baseball! The next thing you know it, they are walking excitedly across the promenade towards the ship's dock. They pass Captain DeLuca, who tells them the holodeck is all theirs. They enter the holodeck and run a program for the 1946 World Series. They enter another world, a world of baseball. They are in the game. Benjamin is at bat, and Jake is playing shortstop. Dax breaks in over Benjamin's comm badge, and Jake freezes the program. A drifting ship has been found, an Earth ship. Benjamin apologizes to his son, but says he has to go. The program continues. Jake witnesses Bobby Thompson's home run that won the 1946 World Series for the Brooklyn Giants. Jake ends the program with a frown on his face. It's just not the same without his father there. The discovered ship is very old. Three bodies are aboard in cryo chambers, but none are alive. Sisko gives the order to sterilize the ship and bring the contents aboard for further study. Sisko tries to contact Jake on the holodeck, but finds he is in ops. Sisko asks why Jake is not on the holodeck, and Jake responds by saying that watching the game, he realized that back then you couldn't just say freeze program because something was more important that came up. You had to commit to something and stick with it. Fathers couldn't just put the game on hold and leave their sons in the middle of a game. Jake's father is all he has. No friends on the station. No mom. How can he be a fan when he's all alone? Sisko feels guilty for his absence and bad for his son, but he says that people have found ways to be fans in all kinds of adverse conditions, even when alone. Dax cuts in again, saying they have the contents of the ship available for study. Sisko is annoyed at the interruption, but he did ask to be told. Sisko takes Jake with him to look over the stuff from the past that must be in that old ship. As they look through it, they find a portable CD player, and O'Brien turns it on. They hear an audio play-by-play of Bobby Thompson's home run. The Giants win the pennant. Jake and Benjamin smile at each other. Sisko asks O'Brien to make some specific modifications to the player and afterward gives it to Jake. Later, Jake finds O'Brien and thanks him for the player and the modification. O'Brien says no problem, but still wonders why Jake would want a device that would just play four hours worth of baseball highlights that you have to let play to the end because all the other player functions are disabled. Jake comes back to the present, and as the lovely Bajoran lady sits down at the other side of the table, continuing to natter away about absolutely nothing of interest, she calls the CD player junk. Jake presses play and revels in the play-by-play as his meal companion tells him to turn off that noise. Eventually, 
She yells at him to turn that thing down. Jake just laughs and hears the Giants have won the pennant. The end. So, he has no friends? What happened to Nog? I, I don't know. Was this before Nog? In a time period? I don't know. There is no before Nog. Oh, sure there is. Well, isn't there? I thought... Well, they didn't... The very first episode. Oh, really? Yeah. Right away? Okay. I didn't remember that. Yes. Well, that... Sorry. Nog was not... Nog's presence would not have drilled home the point, so they ignored him. (laughs) Which, quite frankly, the whole story is a bit contrived, I think. But I'm I'm really not a fan of the story. Yeah, I wasn't all that... No. A lot of the events seem very forced and contrived. And they forgot about Nog. Exactly. How do you forget about Nog? Exactly. He's unforgettable. Um, also, I, th- I also I think it's a little bit of a sexist story. Um, sexist? A, a little bit. So, okay, first off, who's the girl? I was, was wondering she... that myself. I mean, we... Yeah. Because okay. Because so, I mean, because Jake seems older, wouldn't you? But agree? not older, but not fully. He doesn't seem like a fully adult man yet. Right. Now she kind of acts like she's his girlfriend, or maybe even wife. But he still right. looks on the young side. See, I wasn't sure if she was supposed to be the wife he had in uh, that episode, The Visitor, where it showed the future, and you know. Uh, Cisco's been dead for a while, uh-huh. and, and then Cisco starts showing up to his son every right. few years, as like a just for a very brief amount of time, right? Uh, which I think is like one of the best episodes. Um, and Tony Todd played old Jake, mm-hmm. but in that continuity, he had a wife, and she was Bajoran. Yeah, and but her name was Azina or something like that. Azine, not okay. And, and, this woman's name is never mentioned except on the very last page. It seems like he says Sue, but I don't know for sure if, if that's the full name or that's just what he was going to start saying, and then it kind of got drowned out. Right. He says, I'm sorry, Sue. Huh. What did you say? You know, like, yeah. did, he finish his, did he finish what he was going to say? But I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming it's her. Okay. But why he would call her Sue, I don't know. Me neither. Because her name is Azina or Azini, something like that. Right. At first I thought she was just, you know, like they were in, um, you know, in some restaurant in the promenade. And I thought she was maybe a server or something at first. Right. But then it kind of looks like like their quarters, maybe. I don't know. Right. And he's telling her to sit down before her food gets cold. Right. Exactly. It seems more of a domestic sit, uh, situation. Yeah. Anyway, but I, I call it sexist just a little bit because, I mean, that's kind of a stereotype, isn't it? A woman, uh, you know, the woman is just preoccupied with trivial, trivial garbage. I mean, things that are important to her, but absolutely have no interest for anybody else in the world, except maybe uh, uh, another female friend. Because uh, everything she was saying was like, God, I would I would rip my eyes out if my wife talked about stuff like that all the time. <laughs> I mean, I would. I mean, now, now mind you, I've known a few ladies kind of like that, but um, I I don't know. It just it just seems like a little bit of a stereotype. 
uh, of like like women are like this. Right. Um, that's all. Yeah, it's fine. Whatever. All right. Oh, no. did you ever see a man portrayed like that? No. I mean, no, I, I agree. I mean, and that's why I thought, well, maybe she's supposed to be somebody from the show. Yeah. But I don't remember his wife in that future episode being so talkative. <laughs> About nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I agree with you. But it, it, it's fine, whatever. And then the whole story arc with the baseball seems very abrupt because it seems like as soon as they walk in, he leaves. But it also, maybe they've been playing for a while. Right. I don't know. Well, I wish there was a little little dialogue box that said, you know, nine innings later or whatever. Yeah, something. Kind of right. explain how much time had passed. Well, the good thing about these short stories is there really isn't enough time for filler. So that's a good thing. Right. On the downside, the narrative is a bit rushed. Right. So it'd be nice to have a little bit more going on to explain the story a bit better. Uh, but, yeah, these are short stories. They're cramming five into 48 pages. So. Right. Now, lastly, um, that ship that they found, is it supposed to be a Botany Bay-type class ship? From the 90s, the quote-unquote 90s, and that's that's uh, why they're all in asleep and why they still have compact discs and things like that well, that we had in the 90s. Exactly. So there were only three people on it, so I doubt if it was nearly as big a ship as the Botany Bay, obviously. Right. But it's it does have uh, cryo sleep cells in it, you know, cryo chambers, whatever. So in ways, it does sound like that. Uh, and... But the thing that was a disconnect for me is it's like CD player. CD player? I mean, that's like, that's old tech. But the Botany Bay did go launch, as you pointed out in the last episode, uh, in the 90s, supposedly. That's when the eugenics war was. Um, but really, I mean, the... It's, you know... When CDs are around, the CD players were around, and I know this is an older comic, but did they... Back in 1995 when this was written, did they really think that CDs were going to be around into the future to the point that people, uh, you know, there, there were actually spaceships that could go uh, out of the solar system? I don't know. It just Well, this one wasn't supposed to. They said it was interplanetary, so it's supposed to stay within the solar system. And somehow over the Oh, did they say years, I didn't get that. It's made its way to Bajor, which is but, pretty damn bad. What? Get... Uh, God, scientifically, that's absolute BS. Unless, yeah. of course, it fell into a wormhole. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> there on page seven, you do kind of get to see the nose of it, and it yeah. does resemble the Botany Bay a little bit. So yeah. it has, like, the rings about midway through, like the Botany Bay did. Yeah. So I do think that's where they're going with it. Yeah. And, you know, as far as CDs, that was the, the prevalent way of recording media in the 90s. Botany Bay was supposed to be sent in the '90s, so I'm buying it. I, I, I think that's actually somewhat of a good merger of the two. Right, except for the, uh, except for the, um, the reality that no, they, they they put the '90s time period of the eugenic war back in the '60s when Taz took place. 
And they're writing this in 1995, where clearly we're nowhere near having even interplanetary ships. I mean, that could move around in the solar system with people. But, yeah, You haven't even found a way to freeze people and bring them back. You'd think we'd need that, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, that's kind of a big deal with both the Botany Bay and this. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, it's it's fine, I guess. No, and and even if it, you know, it has its... And I don't like the CD player thing. uh, No. Where Cisco's big gift is to rig it up so that it won't stop playing. So it couldn't be interrupted. So it couldn't be paused. That, that is, it's so, it's so forced. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's just forced. Right. I have nothing else to say. Nor I. Let's move on. Not, that, that was probably my least favorite story in this book. But. Story number three, Oaths. Okay, writer Terry Pallett. Penciler Rob Davis, inker Jack Schneider, letterer Patrick Owsley, color design Mike Heileman, associate editor Dan Shaheen, media line editor Mark Panacea. Dr. Bashir and Jadzia Dax are in the infirmary examining an unconscious young Bajoran girl named Brythe. The good doctor cannot figure out why she is in this prolonged unconscious state. Jadzia does not know either. Her search of the medical database for similar symptoms came up empty. However, a search in the Bajoran religious texts turned up a partial match. A similar state was induced temporarily by a specific mixture of herbs and plants taken during a Bajoran religious ceremony. It was used in the presence of an orb at the monastery in Tanlos. It reportedly caused the person's consciousness to leave their body and communicate with the prophets. Archaeologists' attempts to recreate the mixture were tested, but the state only lasted a few minutes and the test subject's brain function returned normally. Maybe maybe a synthesized version of the drug could help Brythe. Jillian is not sure about using an unknown drug, but the mention of the orb triggers something. He checks and indeed confirms the shuttle she arrived on had recently carried the orb the Grand Nagus sold to the Bajorans. The residual radiation that orb gave gave off might have triggered Bright's condition. Later, after they successfully tried a synthesized version of the drug on Bright, Bashir is speaking to Sisko in his office. Sisko is saying he contacted the Bajorans and they are unable to locate any of the real version of the drug. So much was lost or stolen during the occupation. In his medical log, Bashir reports Bright's condition is deteriorating. She will be dead in hours unless they can find a way. Quark enters the room and asks the doctor to come with him. They meet a Bajoran who has obtained the original drug the doctor seeks but at a high price. Quark pays it and says he will find a way for the doctor to pay him back. Odo emerges from a support strut in the hallway they are in. He says the Bajoran with the drug is Maquis, and he stole the drug from the Cardassian outpost. Of course the Cardassians stole it from the Bajorans during the occupation. Also, this money will go to support the terrorist organization, which amounts to treason against the Federation. Quark trafficking in twice-stolen merchandise is understandable, 
but the doctor being involved is very disappointing. Bashir tells Odo he needs that drug to save a life. Odo says he realizes that, but he cannot allow the use of the stolen item until after this illegal situation has been sorted out. He cannot have his authority undermined, no matter the justification. Odo grabs the Maquis to take him into custody. The doctor tells Odo he has taken an oath to save lives, and he has taken the drug to the infirmary now. You can see me about it after I am finished. The two men are at a standoff, both glaring at each other. Finally, Odo tells the doctor to go, and not to put him in this situation again. Odo takes Quark and the Maquis into custody. The drug breaks the neural cascade, and Brythe wakes up. She says nothing of meeting the prophets, and returns to her parents. They have much to thank Quark and Odo for. Brythe does so by giving Odo a big hug that the big lug was very uncomfortable with. The end. This might be my least favorite of all these. <laughs> okay. Okay, go ahead. No, I'm just saying, it just, I need, the the whole idea of the medicine seemed kind of weird, that it somehow kicks you out of your body and then puts you back in or something like that. Yeah. Didn't care for that, and then coincidentally, these people have it, you know, that, uh... And they're able to get their hands on it and bring it so quickly. Right, and then Odo's like, oh no, I didn't like Odo's character. No. And then... I don't know, just really seemed odd. Well, odd, and again, forced, and contrived. But in the end, there's so much of the story I don't like, I agree with you. However, there's one thing I do like, and of course, that's the whole centerpiece of the story, the standoff between Odo and Dr. Bashir. Obviously, Dr. Bashir takes the Hippocratic Oath, and Odo has his oath to enforce the law. Right. And these two very serious, passionate people about their oaths are face-to-face in a situation where somebody's got to give. Somebody's going to have to compromise on their oath. Uh, if this, It's a deadlock. Right. And, and that part of the story, I liked a lot. But the rest of it that got you to that point, mm, again, not a fan. So how much time did you spend on page 7 looking at those two middle panels of Bashir and Odo staring at each other eye to eye trying to find differences? Oh! <laughs> Not much time, quite frankly. Yeah, so there's, there's, two, there's two panels. They're the exact same panel. Yeah. But uh, I, I did like, okay, what's different? Nope. <laughs> and did and you find anything different? Nope. They, they just use the same drawing again. Very just, economical. Just copy and paste. Exactly. To really emphasize that they're staring each other down. <laughs> right. So it's a very wide and very short panel. And they're exactly the same size. And yes, they're just staring at each other intently. Not with fondness. And, nope. uh, yeah. Two immovable objects. Two forces of nature. Which will give. And then it's Odo. And yeah. I do like it when he says, go, but don't put me in this situation again. Yep. Yep. And really, Odo is the one that should give. I mean, somebody's going right. to die. Come on. I mean, you're being kind of a prick for even taking it this far. 
Right. Quite frankly, Otto. Sorry. But he gets a hug at the end, so it's all good. Yes, and he's really enjoying it. It's like, uh, uh, what, what is this thing? It's a child. Anyway. So, cute, I guess, but forced. Right. And, but it still had some, some positive points. One positive point. I, I'll agree with you. I do like that point. Yeah. Although, it, it does seem a little out of character for Odo to threaten the little girl's life. For yeah. Life. Yeah, it's like, uh, I mean, you can straighten out the legal stuff later. Right. There's no rush on that. Yeah. But you do need to take but, care of the But, I mean, he did make a point. It is twice stolen merchandise. Yeah. But. There again. Right. Twice. So, really, it's coming back into the hands of the good guys. Right. And yeah, it's, it's helping stolen. a Bajoran. It's helping a Bajoran girl. Right. That is a Bajoran girl, right? Yeah. Yep. Right. Which I did kind of wonder if maybe, oh, maybe you know, this is one of those situations where Quark could have tipped Odo off beforehand, you know, so that... Almost so that it looks like Quirk's doing the right thing by, mm-hmm. you know, letting Odo know that he's going to get this contraband in, but also kind of to his own his own devices that he doesn't have to pay. Because <laughs> <laughs> Odo, I mean, what Odo should have done is arrested him, that's a good point. the the drug, and then given it to Bashir. That's that's how that should have played out. Right. And then you know, Quirk wins because. He did the right thing by, if he exactly. did, let Odo know before. And, right. And he doesn't have to pay right. a huge amount. Right. Because they, they, yeah. they didn't say that, though, so I'm, I'm stretching a little bit on what Quark's motives might have been. Right. But on the surface, it looks like he was just doing the right thing. Right. Which isn't necessarily out of character for him. Because he'll do the right thing if it means a profit. But what is out of character is him actually paying a lot of money for that drug. Right. Which made me wonder. That, that's right. what made me wonder that right. he kind of expected Odo to catch him all along. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, Shall we move on? Yeah. You, anything else? I have nothing else on that one. Okay, story number four, continuing the countdown. This one's called Honor. Writer is Christopher Pelton. Layouts, Moose Bauman. Penciler, Ann Timmons. Inker, Scott Reed. Oddly enough, I didn't see a letterer. I mean, if I missed it, my apologies, but I did not see a letterer credit in there. Yeah, it's not in there. Um, Color design, Ray Brown. Interior color, Wolfpack. Color editor, Salvador Mancha. Associate editor, Dan Shaheen. Media line editor, Mark Panacea. Nog is deep in thought in his uncle's bar. Quark is asking him, what is he doing? Nog is shocked out of his deep thoughts, or daydreaming, whatever. Nog says he has a lot on his mind, to which Quark says he should be focusing on how to become a profitable adult. Quark then changes course and says, it's all about your far-fetched desire to go to Starfleet Academy, isn't it? After Quark chastises Nog for such a foolhardy goal, he asks Nog to take a package down to Cargo Bay 6 and pick up a package of latinum for him. Count them all, there should be 15,000 bars. Quark tells him, no matter what, do not open the box. Just deliver it and get the payment. Nog tells Quark he can count on him, and he leaves for the cargo bay. 
On the way, his curiosity gets the best of him, of course, and he opens the box. In it, he finds an audio playback device and a vial of green liquid. The playback device addresses him as Centurion and tells him it is imperative to get the enclosed vial of toxin to Gardasia. It is from the Gamma Quadrant and has been discovered to be extremely toxic to Cardassians. An antitoxin must be developed for it before our enemies can use it on us. It could conceivably destroy the Cardassian race. Nog thinks about all the trouble and even death the Cardassians have caused for the Bajorans and Federation. With this, the Federation could wipe out the Cardassian threat once and for all. If he turns us over to Captain Sisko, he would be a hero. They might even give him a starship. But he told his uncle he, he could count on him. He ends up going to the cargo bay. Two hooded and masked figures are there with a case for Nog. Before Nog hands over the box, one of them tells him that Quark made a fine choice. He will be well paid, and in return, he will be responsible for wiping out the Cardassian Empire. You too should be proud of your part in all this. Nog stops and wouldn't give them the box. He says how the Cardassians have done terrible things over the years, but that does not justify genocide. Someday the Cardassians may even become allies of the Federation, as the Klingons have become over time. Nog advises them to make themselves scarce before Captain Sisko finds them on his station. Before he can leave the cargo bay, the masks come off and the buyers are exposed as Jake and Rom. Jake asks Nog to hold on a minute. Jake tells him he was afraid Nog was going to give up on his dream of going to Starfleet due to recent self-doubt. So he dreamed this test up to show Nog he has just what it takes to be a fine Starfleet officer. After explaining how he and Rom set all this up, Nog asks how did they talk Quark into all this? Jake says that is another story. The end. So this was a nice little light one. Yes, it's light. And it features Nog. Yeah. And he does the right thing. Even though his uncle's going to be mad, he still does the right thing. He does. He, well, he doesn't do the right thing by looking in the box. No. He does the right thing about once he has it. Yeah. But come on. You knew he was going to open the box. Well, and Jake knew he was going to open the box. And Quark knew he was going to open the box. So... Right. Overall, I thought the art was good in this one, except mm-hmm. for the uh, the last page when they take the masks off. Um, Rom looks like Quark in that first picture. And yeah. then the second picture in profile, he looks just like Rom. But that first yeah. one, he looks more like Quark than Rom. Eh, kinda. Yeah, he, he looks more like Quark in the first one. Right. Um, yeah, the, the artwork was okay. It was good. I, I enjoyed it. I thought yeah. Nog's little, when he's thinking to himself about how he's going to make his own profit, and then, oh, i got to do the right thing. I mean, right. I really get his emotions there. I thought that was good. Yeah. He did play all of the, <laughs> or the main scenarios out in his mind. Um, I thought 15,000 bars of latinum was rather high. I mean, 
unless they're really small bars, isn't 15,000 bars, I mean, maybe, maybe they're different sizes. But, but, you know, gold bars today, you know, they tend to be, at least in the movies, about a certain standard size. Uh, and I think I've seen, you know, lat- bars of latinum too, and they seem to be larger, right? So 15,000, I mean, would Nog even be able to move the box it came in? Well, I don't know. He'd probably have an anti-grav sled or, of okay. some sort. He could okay, that, that would be fine. It's just like, like 15,000, jeepers. <laughs> it just, I mean, right there it was like, something didn't sound right, but whatever. Right. Agreed. A little excessive for him to carry carry back to the bar. Right. And not draw attention. Right. <laughs> um, so was Nog kind of a self-doubt Ferengi in the show? Yeah. I, it, did he? Okay. Yeah, he had he had a lot of his uh, uncle in him. I mean, ah. his, bro- his, his dad. His dad, right. Right. Or he would say something, and immediately he would like, oh, uh, it was the wrong thing, and kind of cower and right. apologize or whatever. <laughs> I do remember him cowering multiple times, I suppose but, you're right. But he outgrew it, especially once he went to Starfleet and came back, you know. Which there was I that really saw. great story arc when he came back where uh, he had, um, he thought he hurt his leg, or it was, you know, it was just a mental, you know, post-war trauma type thing, mm-hmm. or mentally he thought he was... Uh, couldn't use his leg, or he had pain in his leg. A little, a little like Watson in the new Sherlock mm-hmm. first episode. Right. But I mean, it went on for several episodes, and then he realized, through the help of the holodeck and Vic Fontaine, that uh, you know, ah! that uh, it's just all in his head. So he does become, you know, a true character, a very confident character, self-confident character. But in the beginning, he was a little. Scared you can't. Okay, that's good. So that's consistent with the story. That's cool. So the green vial was full of uh, split pea soup. Mmm, split pea soup. Mmm. And I just want to point out, don't want to be nitpicky, but split pea soup, though it may be a pale green, doesn't look like the liquid that was inside the vial that was drawn. I've seen The Exorcist. I know what split pea soup looks like. (laughs) Right, but so does it look like the stuff in the vial? And it's coming out of someone's mouth, yeah. Well, wait a minute. It looks like a like like a clear, semi-clear green liquid. It, it looks like water mixed with green food coloring. In the vial. Not, in the vial. Not the soup. In right. the vial, where the soup is more, you know, it look you can't see through it. It's right. you know. It's well, maybe he watered peas. it down. Yeah. Right. Okay. It's a minor point. Yeah, I, I I get what you're saying. Yeah. I don't have any other comments. Kid. Yeah, yeah, me neither. Just to say that um, in a previous comic we read, uh, the actor that, that plays Nog was saying he, why isn't, uh, he asked the Malagaboo guys, why is Nog never in a comic? Well, here he is. He's in a comic. Right. Just want to point that out. And he'll be in the next one briefly. Yes. Speaking of which, story number five, Dangerous Times. Writer is Joe Fielder. Penciler, Rob Davis. Inker, Bruce McCorkendale. Letterer, Dave Lamphere. Color design by Moose Bauman. 
Computer Color by Malibu, Associate Editor Dan Shaheen, Media Line Editor Mark Panacea. Otto is walking through the promenade, passing Garak and Morn, and following Nog, who was running ahead of him. Otto asks what Nog is doing in the promenade. Meanwhile, in dark shadows nearby, a device is planted on a bulkhead wall. A blonde man standing behind Odo and partially behind a wall says, Now! into a communicator. The wall near Odo explodes. People are running all over the place. In the confusion, the blonde man plants a tracking device on Odo's back and says, Energize! Gloop starts coming out of Odo's back around the device, projecting it up and off his back as it transports away from the promenade. Odo turns and grabs the blonde man. Odo pushes him against the wall using his Mr. Fantastic left arm. Odo tells the blonde man he will tell him about the explosion and where that transporter beam was supposed to have taken him. Later, in Ops, Odo is telling Sisko that the explosion miraculously did not seriously hurt anyone, and they are searching for accomplices. Odo has found no record of the man who attempted to abduct him. No one matching his description is in the station arrival logs. Dr. Bashir has confirmed he is human, but, uh, but other than that, he is a mystery. His fingerprints and retina scans don't even match anyone on file. Sisko asks if he has made any enemies during his many years as security chief of the station. Odo says, plenty but they are more the types that would just kill him rather than kidnap him. Odo says it's more likely it has something to do with his family, the Founders. Sisko and Odo go to visit the blonde mystery man in the brig. After a thoroughly pleasant conversation with the blonde man, Odo's would-be abductor gets angry and tips his hand. He says Sisko and people like him are the biggest threat the Federation faces. Weak leaders that would actually put a founder in charge of station security. He admits he wanted to take Odo and make him a lab rat. See what makes him tick, and find a way to kill changelings. The two have heard enough, and return to Ops. They discuss how they don't know enough about the blonde man's organization. It could be just a few crackpots, or it could be much larger. Another explosion erupts on the station outside security. An Andorian ship is unexpectedly departing the station. Sisko says the ship is likely leaving with the blonde man. Dax tries to capture the departing ship with a tractor beam, but she is too late. The ship departed way faster than it should have. It must have been an advanced ship. Hager contacts Sisko from the site of the explosion. He confirms the blonde man is gone and that there are traces of a recent transport from the area. A well-coordinated, almost military action in its precision and effectiveness. Sisko assures Odo that what the blonde man had to say is against everything the Federation stands for. They will get to the bottom of this. Odo is not as confident as the captain. There is so much we still don't know. The end. We don't know. Exactly. So, was the blonde man section 31? Or what? 
I don't know. It seems like the, when they talk about the military precision of what was going on, it sounds like a Section 31 op. Right. But the guy was kind of whacked. Yes. A, he, he seemed a little crazy. Yeah. Which doesn't quite fit with Section 31. Right. But he did have some cool tech, I guess, that he could throw that little tracker. I mean, it's not little, it's huge. Well, what do you mean, huge? I know it was back? Yeah, the thing. Baseball <laughs> oh, was it that big? Okay. I don't know. It looks big. Yeah, it, it's it's big enough to be noticed. So I guess I guess they wanted you to see it on his back, but it's not a subtle thing. Right. Um, I've seen enough enough comic books and stuff where you can shoot like this tiny little spider tracer or bat tracer or whatever <laughs> onto somebody that's like, you know, just fingernail size, pink, and right. then that do the job. Right. Well, hell, they even do it in Star Trek with the isolator chips or whatever that those little drones were shooting in. Uh, in your in your favorite Star Trek movie of all in, time, Insurrection. Insurrection. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So. Well, the yeah, but the story wanted Odo to grab the guy quick. So, right. if he was using a more logical. Uh, device from a distance, then Odo would have had a harder time noticing it and grabbing him in time. Right. So, whatever. So, the only good thing I can really say about that I really liked about this story is yeah. the to show that the Federation, citizens of the Federation, are very distrustful of the founders and in and, you know, in that in that fear, they also fear Odo. Yeah. Especially now that the Dominion War is not quite happening, but it's brewing. Right. Um, I, I like that. I like that when they show that not everybody totes the line of Starfleet. You know, Sure. There is individual people, and they can have their own fears and agendas. So aside from right. that, I, I liked it. Yeah. The original Toss series did tend to put uh, the Federation and Starfleet on a pedestal. And they always made the right decision. Uh, they were the good guys. And everybody where, toted the same line. Right. Everybody, every colony had the same ideals as the Federation. Um, yes. Right. And, and for the most part, I think Next Generation and Deep Space Nine do the same thing. I mean, we have the Maquis, which is an offshoot, but very rarely do we just talk to the Joe Blow on the street who, who has a radical difference in right. opinion. Well, isn't something they said the original uh, creators and producers of the Voyager TV series is they purposely wanted to inject more conflict into this show uh, between the characters just because everything is a little... At least between the people of the Federation and the ships, everybody's... There's not enough conflict. There's not enough differing opinions. Right. Um, it makes it more interesting when there is. So. Right. And, and of course, they, and of course, now in the movies, good lord! I mean, there are elements of the of Starfleet that are out and out murderers, right? Those nasty Section Thirty One guys. Uh yes, right. And Marcus, Admiral Marcus, who's also the head of Section Thirty One. <sighs> Is he? Did they say that he's the head of Section Thirty One? 
or he's a he's very part of a section well, thirty-one. Uh, I'll agree with that. And he's supposedly the head of Starfleet. I think they did say that. Well, yeah. So, okay, but is section thirty is section thirty-one a subdivision of S- Starfleet, right? Yep. Or yeah, a yeah. subdivision of the Federation, or yeah. its own thing off on the side? No, it's it's Starfleet. Okay. Okay. So, um, yeah, I think Marcus, as the head of Starfleet, uh, I guess he is the head of Section 31. Because in the org chart, he's at the top. (laughs) So, but I I didn't know he was directly. I mean, doesn't he have a Nick Fury or something? Uh, Somewhere. And maybe we'll get that in the ongoing because they're they're playing a bigger part. Right. Maybe that guy with the mustache. Right. That shadowy guy with the mustache. If the shadowy guy and the mustache guy are the same people. Still don't know that. Well, I'll agree with that, but... Yeah, okay. Alright, what else you got on this book? I, nothing. 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 A, a little too plastic manny for uh, Odo, I thought. Yeah. Making his arm into a giant uh, manacle that, that holds his, the, the whole got the... Uh, wraps around the whole guy's body. Right. Uh, all around his arms and chest. Right. So, so it's like a, like a bangle. A really shrunk bangle. Or may, <laughs> maybe more like a, uh, a foot. Uh, you know, like the ball and chain that they put around your ankle? Oh, right. It's like one of those clamps. Around your whole body. Right. And it's, it's no toys about it. It's handy to be Odo. Oh, I guess I guess I have one more comment. The funny thing is... Uh, Odo's clothes are is Odo. I mean, that's that's Odo's flesh, if you will, his protoplasm. So I guess that is the reason why he knew right away that something was put on his flesh. Right. So it's yeah, like especially something that big. It's like the Section Thirty One guy is like, oh, I'm going to put this on his clothes, and he won't feel it. Well, no, it's not his clothes. It's really Odo that you just put that thing on. So that is how I am justifying in my mind how Odo would be that aware that somebody had just uh, put a kick me sign on his back. Agreed. So that's and it. It's huge. So of course you feel that. <laughs> it isn't that big. I mean, come on. You're making a. I don't think it's the size of a baseball. No, it's probably not the size of a baseball. But a hockey I mean, puck. I don't think it's that big. It I mean, big. a hockey puck is about as wide as a baseball. My friend. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> ah, so you're purposely just trying to. Uh, I will say that evade. it changes shape because if you look on page two, it shows it in the guy's hands, and it's pretty small. Yeah. He's he's holding it just by the fingertips, but then he right. throws it on Odo. His hands pretty far away from Odo, and yet it looks much bigger than it did in the previous picture. Yeah. Uh, so who knows? There you go. It grew big while it was transporting. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, lastly, if you look on page four, the uh, Bajorans putting out the fire. Uh, is mm-hmm. that Julian Bashir in Bajoran makeup? It does look like him, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I noticed that too. I was like, oh, he got a cameo as a Bajoran. Yeah. And look at that. Technology for putting out fires really has not gone beyond uh, CO2 coming out of a canister. Oh, you think they they should have like a ray for that? I don't know something. 
That'd be pretty cool. I mean, it looks like that looks like something I got in my uh, in my kitchen for right. uh, you know in the cabinet that we bought like ten years ago and never touch. Luckily, yeah, because we've never had a fire. But better make sure they haven't expired. I do check it once in a while, but I I, I have not checked it in years. Yeah, good me point. Either. Good that point. That reminds me, I might do that this weekend. <laughs> there you go. Life lessons from the Star Trek comic book. Review team. Exactly. We just, yes, the Star Trek comic book review team would like to remind you to check your fire equipment. <laughs> all right. Let's all be safe out there. Okay. Done. Let's do the next one. All right. So the next one is Star Trek Deep Space Nine Wharf Special, number zero, December 1995. And it's broken out into two. Story. So the first story is entitled Bonds of Honor. And its writer was Dan Michigan, penciler Steve Irwin. Inkers were John Montgomery and Scott Reed. Letterer is Tracy Hampton slash Munsey. Um, color design is Mike Hillman. Interior color, Malibu. Editor, Paul Crane. And line editor, Mark Pansia, with special thanks to Leonard Kirk. So, the cover has a background of a blueprint of the top of Deep Space Nine. Um, in front of that, uh, we see some photos that look like maybe they're photoshopped on, on top of it. Uh, we have Worf in his Deep Space Nine uniform. Cisco. We see three random Klingon warriors. And... We see a Klingon battlecruiser firing on a Federation runabout. So this story starts off on a remote space station. Worf, Kira, and Odo are giving a report to an admiral about the Bajoran sector. Many of the random crew members that they're walking by um, are watching them with unease, especially when they see Worf. One even goes so far as starting to draw a phaser on him. When the Admiral asks if he has a problem, he puts it back and says no. The tensions between the Klingons and the Federation are at their highest level since the old Kirk days. Worf leaves in his own runabout, um, and there's some dialogue stating that Oda and Kira are staying behind for some unknown reason for a short amount of time. As Worf is leaving the sector... The station is rocked with a huge explosion. He immediately turns his craft around and tries to contact the station. He overhears calm chatter, and it seems that he is being wanted for sabotage. Hearing that, he flies into a magnetic anomaly nearby to hide out so that he can plan his next move. Back on Deep Space Nine, Sisko is contacted by Admiral... Nechiva. She's the same woman that was actually coming to Worf's defense earlier with that random crew member. Now, she is convinced that Worf is the saboteur of her station. Sisko says that there must be a mistake, but she says that they have very clear evidence. Sisko has to agree that he will arrest Worf when he returns to Deep Space Nine. Back in space, Worf is still planning his next move when there is a blimp on his sensors. He finds a Zanzarian ship nearby. Worf knows that this was the last ship before his own to leave the station before it exploded. 
He tries to contact them, and then suddenly they vanish within a cloak. Suddenly, the ship is behind him and firing on him. The pilot of the craft contacts Worf and gloats about the optical imaging that made Worf think that the first ship was real. He then also admits that he also used the same imaging tech to make the sensors on the station read that Worf had planted those bombs. A firefight ensues, and the Xandarian ship is disabled. Worf keeps asking who hired him to frame him. Before the little green guy can talk, a Klingon ship decloaks and blows the tiny little craft into a million pieces. The Klingon commander is named Gerlag, and he beams Worf over just as Worf is grabbing a phaser from the wall. The Klingons immediately remove Worf's phaser, and it comes out that the Klingons were framing Worf so that he would have to return to the Empire. Worf says that his oath to the Federation is just as strong as any oath the Klingons have. Gerlog and Worf battle with Batliths for a bit. Worf has the upper hand and is about to give the finishing blow when the other Klingons fire at Worf with their disruptors, disintegrating the Batleth in his hand. Even Gerlog is surprised by this. Odo then appears since he was the phaser that Worf had grabbed off the runabout the whole time. Odo uses his Plastic Man powers to knock out all of the Klingons. He tells Worf that they have enough information to clear his name, and they return back to the runabout. Once on the runabout and heading home, Odo is impressed that Worf must have known that he was the extra phaser on the wall the whole time. Odo says that he would plan to test Worf's ability to know when a shapeshifter was present by stowing away on the craft. The end. Hmm. Very convenient. Testing Worf's ability, Kling, a Klingon's ability to, to detect a shapeshifter. Really? Like Klingons are supposed to have a, a sixth sense or something about that? Right. Well, you know, if you're going to be on station at Deep Space Nine, you need to uh, be cognizant of these kind of things. Well, but Klingons have been on the station in the past. Right. I mean, but if, Worf's it, on there so that he can be their their well, know all that. about Klingons, and they have the the threat of the Dominion. I'm not defending it. It's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just. I mean, that's fine. I mean that. Yeah, I was surprised <laughs> when he says, Odo, are you going to come out now? I, it's like, what? So, I, you know, that's fine. I was surprised. It's just then the next thing is, when I was reading this, I was saying, that's surprising. Cool. You'd better explain it well. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was before the explosion. That was before everything. What reason is Odo doing on there? Uh, and quite frankly, wh- why did they... I did not see them explain why Kira and Odo supposedly were staying back at the station, the, the space station. Did they, the only, did they explain that? No. The only thing I could think of was maybe because they wanted, Odo wanted to do this little trick thing, and they had to have some sort of weak excuse why they were going to go on a different sh- shuttle. No, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, so they just skipped that. So maybe they were saying... You know, for some whatever reason, ah, we don't have time to explain that. We just we just go with it. I mean, it does make sense if if 
Odo's true intention was to do this test, then okay, it makes sense that he would, you know, like like if you were having a surprise party, oh, <laughs> we're gonna take another car, you know, kind of thing. Uh, uh, we'll take another runabout, even though we all all drove here in one runabout. Well, we don't know. Odds that. are. We well, come on. Have... <laughs> I mean, it's like they don't carpool. It's like, hey, we got we got to go to a space station far away. That's we got. That's why I got this extra thing hump on the back of the runabout. Right. But because um, we're going long range, and I don't know. It's just the whole. There were aspects of it that, that didn't make sense, but that's fine. Right, and and just coming right off the heels of that last story where, you know, Oda was going to allow some little kid to die for the sake of the law. Right. As soon as he overheard Admiral saying, arrest Worf as soon as you see him. He should. He should have, you know, un- unfurled himself right there and arrested Worf and started piloting it back to the space station. However, if I may point out a, um, a nit... He's not Starfleet. Yeah, Odo isn't. Law's the law, man. Well, okay, but he—he he, his jurisdiction is the space station. Uh, Deep Space Nine. Right. Um, and he's not Starfleet, and he's there to... He's under the orders of Cisco. Um, I don't know. There just might be a little bit of jurisdictional stuff. But, yeah, I, I agree to some degree to your point. Right. Okay. I um I didn't like the cover. <laughs> the the Photoshop stuff. Uh yeah, it, it 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 didn't even look like they used Photoshop. It looks like they just kind of kind of cut out a photo of of Worf, and then cut out a photo of Cisco, and then cut out a photo of a Klingon bird of prey, and then three three Klingons uh, with batlets that they just put on on Worf's shoulders. That kind of reminds me of uh, Evil Dead Two. Uh, when there were the the three or so little uh, ashes running around, and yeah, that's that's Army of Darkness. Oh, mm, no, you're right. Sorry, Army of Darkness. Yes, you're right. But it just reminded me of Army of Darkness when the right. the little ashes were running around. Yeah, because they're, they're, they're like they're like little wharfs <laughs> that are hanging out on his shoulder. I could see that. That's funny. And, anyway. Yeah, so some of the pinups at the end of the book would have made a better cover. Oh yes, I, okay. Let's. I want to talk about that. I think some of the pinups at the end are great. So wh- why do they go for such a weak? Yeah, I, I like artist. I like artistic covers. I don't like photo covers. Agreed. And that's a combination of photo and a little bit of artistry because the space station is is drawn, uh, not a photo. Um, you know why? Why? I don't get it. I don't either. Yeah. Yeah, that one with fa- with uh, Warfire Fire and the Phaser would have been a, a really nice cover. Right. And I really like him in the cowboy outfit, the Marlboro Man look. Although that's not his normal hat. He has a normal hat? Yeah. Well, you know, his normal hat is pushed up. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Like in Fistful okay. of Datas? Yes, exactly. Pushed up in the front. Maybe we should be holding this off for the end, but right. uh, I do like some of those uh, pinups. Quite nice. Now, Gerlog is is he was he from a previous episode? Apparently, I didn't recognize his name. I did not recognize the name either. So either they just picked a random Klingon to throw in there, but I 
it seemed like it seemed like something that had came come out of the TV show episode, but I did not recognize him. Yeah, the uh, yeah, according to Memory Beta, Gerlog was a Klingon captain and commander of a bird of prey. Gerlog was once imprisoned on a oh, he was in prison with Worf, so maybe that's from an episode. They don't have a episode name after it. Yeah. So I'm sure. I guess so. Probably. Although I don't remember that episode. I don't remember that episode. It could have been that... No, he wasn't in prison. Yeah, I don't I don't remember. Yeah. So I like the uh, explosion of the Starbase One on the title page. That was pretty cool. It looks worse than it ended up being. Well, apparently so. So it looks like... It looks like one of the pylons, like, like like some kind of extension kind of thing, was broken, was blown clean off. Right. Or it's a very weird, like, L-shaped space station. Yeah, if you, on the first page you can kind of see, it looks like it has three long pylon things. Oh yeah, there so you go. I guess just one of them is yeah. blown off. So that looks pretty serious. And um, it's a good thing that... Kira wasn't hurt, apparently. Yeah, well, we don't ever see her again, do we? Right. <laughs> yeah, we see that uh, that com- that uh, Commodore or whatever. Uh, Admiral. Admiral. She's an Admiral. So we do see the Admiral all beaten and bruised, um, who was also with Kira and Worf in the, uh, in the hangar area. Right. So, yeah, I'm sure she's fine. I'm sure she is. I bet we see her in the next story. I bet. <laughs> I thought the issue made a big thesis about how Worf has never been accepted by most humans because he's a Klingon. And, you know, I really never thought about that. I, And maybe it's because most of it took place on the Enterprise. Right. I don't remember anybody on the Enterprise not accepting Worf. Um, and heck... I mean, there's all kinds of aliens in Starfleet, and right. you know, so it's like, I, I, I just, I never got the sense from the TV show or the comics um, or novels that Worf was an outcast from the feder- from this from his Starfleet, you know, right. the, the Earth people that he worked with. Um, right from from who he worked with, I agree. I, I do think. Worf, like when he was growing up. I mean, we've seen right, a couple right. of stories. Well, that's, yeah, that, I think he always thought of himself as an outcast, but sure. I don't necessarily know if if everybody else really thought of him that way. Right. And he and he's an outcast, at least in the beginning, when he interacts with Klingons. He seems definitely to be an outcast, because he's clearly not like them. Right. I mean, yeah. he's in a Starfleet uniform, he works for Starfleet, and he doesn't work for them. So... Right, and a lot of them think he's a, a traitor or whatever. Right, or at the very least, uh, wimpy. That is until Worf beats their butt. Right. So I thought that was a little bit overdone. I never realized that was there before, but... Right. Yeah, and then they drove it home that, <coughs> you know, especially that conversation with Odo that, you know, Odo feels the same way, which yeah. I can kind of see it more with Odo than, than yeah. Worf. Yeah. Because... You know, at this time, 
Well, when this comic book came out, yeah, there was that whole the Klingons and the Federation might go to war again. So at this time, I could see maybe people not liking the Klingons too much. But, you know, almost all throughout Deep Space Nine, Odo, Odo's people are the main enemy throughout right. the whole seven yeah. years. So yeah. Odo, to me, feels more like the outcast. You know, it'd be like if Worf was on the original Enterprise. To me, yeah. that would that would be more of that dynamic. These people truly are our enemies right now, uh, and he's the one good guy. Yeah. And even early on, even though Odo is, you know, the, the symbol of, uh, of authority as the constable of the station, he's, I mean, they've, he's always played the outcast card because he doesn't know where he's from. He's the absolutely only one like him that, that he's aware of anyway until later in the show. Sure. So, um, definitely agreed with him, just not as much with uh, Worf. Agreed. So, it's handy those uh, Zenosians were so fast to confess their guilt to Worf. Boy, they were stupid, weren't they? Boy, they were stupid. And so, Worf wasn't recording that? It's like, okay. And then, of course, uh, Odo turns out to be a witness, which, good. Okay, that problem's over. We now who di- we now know who did it, and you've got a witness. So, and it's probably electronically recorded. Right. Uh, so that was handy. Yep. Yeah, it was pretty stupid. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, because he he says it almost. Uh, he says it immediately. Ha ha! You're impressed with my imaging. Made you think that that was a ship. I also used it to make everybody think you planted that bomb. Ha ha! Why? <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm going to kill you. And as every supervillain versus a spy or whatever, they always confess their complex plans before they think they're going to kill the hero. <laughs> yes. But somehow the tables are always turned, aren't they? Well, yeah, these Klingons blasted them to little little green bits. Supposedly. Oh, you think But actually not. Bits? Well, I think they actually said in there. Oh, do they? Oh. Yeah. Didn't Worf say, use that same technology that, oh, that framed right. me to make it look like you destroyed them, but you didn't. Because that was all part of the subterfuge. That was part of his explanation. I'm coming to your aid, Worf. Now, come on, come on with us. Be a pirate on the high seas of the space. Yes. Anyways, anything else? Because I'm, I'm done. <laughs> you sound tired. Uh, yes. Uh, no, that's it. All right. The next episode or issue or story, whatever story. you want to call it, Unhappy Trails. Um, Moose Bagman is the writer. Rob Davis pencils. Aubrey Bradford is the inks. Dave Lafier is letterers. David Hillman, color design. Malibu, interior color. Phil Crane, Desperado. And Mark Pansia, Filthy Varmint. And that is how they're listed on the title page. Alright, so in Quark's Bar, Dax arrives in full Klingon battle gear. She's going to surprise Worf in the hollow suite and practice with him. Kira sees her and the two of them walk into Worf's running program. They are surprised to not see the Klingon training program. 
Instead, they find themselves in the old Wild West. Sheriff Worf arrives on horseback with a posse. He tells the two of them that they are searching for some thieves who stole a bunch of gold. He allows the women to join him if they agree to change their clothes. Hours later, the two women are now clad in cowboy attire, and Kira is not enjoying herself at all. And Dax is enjoying getting back to nature. She always has a fondness for low-tech stuff. Eventually, the posse arrives at a gorge and finds a trail of smoke in the air. This must be where the thieves are camping out. The trio leave the other posse members behind and they sneak into the gorge. Hiding behind some rocks, they watch the thieves at a campfire, when suddenly they are ambushed by a couple of sentries. The thieves underestimate the women, who suddenly spring into action and knock the bandits out. Talking to themselves, Kira and Dax admit that they are actually having a lot of fun. And then they start chatting about food and clothes. Oh, and the other programs they're going to like. Worf just rolls his eyes and growls. The end. Well, that's a cute little story, huh? Yeah, so are you going to say this one's a little sexist like uh <laughs> Well, it was towards the end a little bit, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I thought the last panel was, the last couple panels was a little weird. Where they just start... Chattering nonstop. Uh, yeah, about girl stuff. <laughs> it's kind of sad that Warp really has nothing to do with this this story. No, he's not part of the fight at the end. No, he's just he's he's just a bystander. Right. He just Maybe. lets them come. Yep. That's that's the limit of his involvement. <laughs> yeah. So, I Moose Bauman is the writer, and he's normally the color guy. Right. So that's cool, having somebody else come up with a little story. But you can, I don't know, it, it seems like a very simplistic story. And well, it's only, what, handful well, it, It's short, too, right. But it's a very simplistic story. Um, and I don't, and I know, yes, there isn't, a, there isn't a huge amount of time to get the story out. But I think it's just indicative that, you know, the, the guy's not a writer. Uh, or that's not his main focus in life. But that's nice. I mean, uh, you know, you got a story, you know. You got a script. Okay, let's do it. That's kind of good. Yeah. It, 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 out of all the really short ones that we've read today, yeah. it, it's one of my favorites. But, I, I mean, I don't love it. I didn't really care for any of the little short stories this, this week, unfortunately. Yeah. They all seem, you know, maybe it's just because they're too short. You don't right. get a lot of meat, but uh, right. Well, there ain't much meat here. Matter right. of fact, I would say this is about. This is pretty meatless. <laughs> but I just like I like the artwork. I guess and the I like artwork the was very nice. The premise is actually kind of cool. Sure. Right the artwork, the coloring. Yeah. It's it's a good it's a good story or a good issue. Yeah. Maybe not necessarily the best story. Right. And there were things that were like just unnecessary, like in the beginning. Uh, when Jazia and Kira come into the uh, the holodeck where Worf is doing his West program, um, Jadzia says, "Hey, let us come." And it's like Kira's like, "Wait a minute! I don't want to do this. This looks stupid." Basically, I'm paraphrasing. And uh, it's like, "Well, what the heck was she there with 
with uh, Dax if she wasn't going to do that. It's like, what? Were they just like hanging out and meandering around the uh, around the space station? You know, girls hanging out? Uh, I don't know. It, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I didn't understand why Kira was following her up there if, if, if she really was going to do the Batmuth training, which is what Dax thought they were originally going to do. Oh, really? That was what? Oh, but they didn't explain that. That's your theory. Well, no, she says I'm going to surprise. I'm going to surprise uh, Worf and and do some a rematch, or something like that. Oh, well, that explains why she was in her Klingon outfit. Explains why Dax is there, but it doesn't explain why Kira then leads her up to the Hollow Suite. Kira should have said, "Okay, I'm going to finish my drink here. You have fun." Yeah, exactly. Unless she just wanted to see. Unless she wanted to watch the rematch, I don't know. I don't know, man. Well, as uh, as Kira says, sometimes I just don't understand you, to Jedzia, and sometimes I don't understand you, Kira. Okay, so uh, let's see. I really don't have anything else to say about the story. Yep, neither. And we already talked about the posters in the back, which I think I like many of them. Nice job of the artistry, and the coloring is nice. Mm-hmm. There is one of, of Worf in his uh, Next Generation uniform, which seems a little out of place inside of a Deep Space Nine book. Right. But right. if, yeah. But if this is indeed an ode to Worf, why not? Right. Or is are you saying maybe this is just some reused stuff? No, no, no. I'm saying no. I'm not, I think it was new for this book, but okay, just seems a little out of place with all the other ones where he's wearing his red, his command red. Right, right. Good point. And then the last bit of the book, which I didn't synopsize, uh, is was his biography. A, a little biography. On you should have done that. If you don't know Worf's biography by now. <laughs> probably wouldn't be listening to us. <laughs> and I kind of like when they do biographies that are specific to characters. Right. So they, they had that one with Thomas Riker, which was okay, mm-hmm. but with Worf, there's so much there. There's so much history. Right. So it was kind of interesting seeing those events that took place in, in Next Gen and Deep Space Nine and even some of the movies played out pretty much within the context of Worf's life. So I kind of like that. Yeah. You know, there was some omissions. I didn't see anywhere in this little brief thing about the time that he was turned into an android and had to learn how to live within an android's body. Why, why was that skip? Uh, because it's not canon. Nobody <laughs> cares. So that, that came from a comic that we reviewed. Okay. Right. A DC comic. Yeah. It was a joke. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I do have one question, though, as I was reading this. Mm -hmm. Um, Exactly exactly why was Worf adopted by the Rojenkos rather than them returning Worf to the Klingon people and his, his family? I mean, not his immediate family, but he had other family, didn't he? Well, it comes out later that he did, but I kind of thought at the beginning that he didn't have any family. But then later... Well, at least he has a brother. We know that. But I don't I don't know if that was... 
that wasn't mentioned right away. That came later, didn't it? Well, that happened. Yeah, I mean, later in the in Deep Space Nine. Later, not, I mean, in next, next gen, gen. Right. right? But still, I mean, it's like, it's like, okay, so that's nice of you guys to 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 take Worf on and stuff. But it's like, I mean, especially if relationships were warming back then. Uh, or at least in the process of warming, warming, wouldn't it make more sense to at least return Worf to his people, even if they they don't know for sure about family? I mean, at least his people would right. make more sense for him to be with than being raised by by humans. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad I'm glad things worked out the way they did. I just I don't know. It just doesn't seem to make sense. No, I agree with you. I never really understood it either, especially yeah. once they introduced Worf's brother. Right. Yeah. Well. Yeah, so uh, didn't they say something about he was where Worf's brother was? He obviously was not uh, there in the colony. No. He was, he was in the bio they said something about where he was. He was off with friends or with family or something. I don't know. Well, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, I, I thought that was very interesting. It's kind of... Uh, I'd be kind of interested to uh, see more comics like this focusing on a particular character and having a little biography. Although, I think some of them might not have enough rich history to draw upon. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Worf is a singular character in the fact that he was a major part of two different franchise, two, two different series within the franchise, overall franchise. Right. Um, so there's a lot of history there. Right. Yeah. He's definitely the. He, he may not be the most popular character. Yeah. And he's definitely up there, and he's and he's you know, he's had more screen time than any other Star Trek character. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. Yep. And uh, supposedly he's one of the richest. Oh, you mean? Uh, well, he's, yes. he made a lot Michael of money. Dorn? Michael Dorn. Yeah. Uh, the actor. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sure. Well, supposedly. He, he's made a fair amount with those between those two series. That's good. Yeah, I know that. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people who didn't start watching Deep Space Nine until he showed up. So yeah, you know, they did the they did the right thing by bringing him on. Oh yeah, and he was a, a very good uh, addition. Right, and it was fit pretty organically too. I mean, I thought the the whole the whole uh, heating up between the Ron, uh, Klingons and Federation didn't necessarily feel forced, you know. It didn't feel like a lot of a lot of times when somebody guest stars or comes to a, a new show, it kind of mm-hmm. seems okay. I guess you had to have a reason for him to come. But I thought that the Klingon thing—it it was good storytelling. Good. Me too. Okay. All right. That's Anything else? The end of my comments. All right. Well, next week we're doing Ashes of Eden. Which is uh, the first book of the Shatner verse, and the only one ever adapted into comedy form. Okay. Cool. So it should be a good one. A nice yes. long story. <laughs> Featuring the good Captain Kirk, and I imagine other characters, but I've never read that one. Right, and it's it's based after Star Trek VI, but before the beginning of Star Trek Generations. So right, it, it's it's a 
it's a really nice story. I liked it. Good. And I'm kind of curious to revisit it after so many years. Yeah. So. All right. Well, with that, I guess we'll let everybody go and talk to everybody next week. Thanks for joining us, everybody, on The Review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.